Please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Would you stand with me and let's pray and invite God to do a work in our hearts and our lives. Zechariah 4.6 says, It's not by power or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As we sang tonight, when, when God moves, our perspective changes. We, we see things differently. So let's invite God. Let's invite the Holy Spirit in your heart. Pray with me. Welcome, Holy Spirit. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we do welcome you in this place and in our hearts afresh. We know that it's not going to be creative teaching or, Lord, the schemes of men and women that's going to change our hearts. Lord, we know it's not even going to be our own intentions, our own hard work. We need a work from you, God. And as we look at the life of Saul and we study him tonight, Lord, would you just reveal in us those things that need to change? And would you give us hope that there can be complete victory in our lives through your strength and through your power? God, would you bless your people in Jesus' name? Amen. You can have a seat. Have you ever been laying in bed and all of a sudden you hear this crashing sound downstairs? And what's your response? What's that sound? What is that? I wonder what it is. And sometimes you get up and go downstairs and maybe your chest is puffed out a little bit and turn on the light real aggressively and maybe yell, give a little yell to scare whatever might be down there, and, and then you find that something just fell off the counter, right? Ever been out in the mountains, the wonderful Rocky Mountains, and you're hiking, and you've heard stories about mountain lions and how dangerous that they can be, and all of a sudden you hear this crackling in the woods. What could this be? And your heart starts to beat a little bit faster, and you ask the question, what's that sound, right? And you get around the corner, and it's a deadly squirrel. <laughs> but you've asked the question, what is that sound? Well, we have that question a lot in our house because we'll be sitting downstairs watching some TV, reading a book. It's a quiet moment in our, in, in our house, which doesn't happen very often, but it comes and there's quietness in our house and you just hear this strange sound. And I find myself asking a lot, what is that? What's that sound? And everybody answers, it's the hamster. The hamster. He gets onto his wheel upstairs and starts to do the crazy, crazy hamster deal on the wheel, and it just gives the strangest sound, you know. He's our second hamster. Our first hamster has gone to wherever hamsters go, and now this is our second hamster, and it always provokes these weird sounds. Now, what does this have to do with tonight's Bible study? I do not know. The reason I'm bringing this up is because Saul, we've been watching him get off the rails, if you would. He's on this downward slide. He gets a command from God. God tells him, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites and all of their cattle. We'll find that he only partially obeys. Samuel comes, and Saul tries to convince Samuel that he has obeyed completely then Samuel gives these classic words, what's that sound? And he, what's the sound of the cattle, the, the cows that are lowing and the sheep that are doing their sheep thing, you know? And it reveals the compromise in Saul's life. We're going to focus on three words tonight. First, in verses 1 through 9, it's compromise. It's, it's the compromise in Saul's life. 
And then from verses 10 to 23, it's correction. It's the correction that Samuel is going to bring into his life. And then the end of the chapter, verse 24 through 35, is the counter. And what I mean by that is the kickback. It's the kickback of Saul. It's him not agreeing with the correction that he had received from Samuel and ultimately from the Lord. And we all do that, don't we? In some level, in some degree, we go through this pattern where there's compromise in our lives. There's partial obedience, not complete obedience. God, because he loves us, brings correction. And if we're not careful, instead of there being a broken and contrite heart, instead of there being repentance, there's kickback. There's counter. We're, we're countering. We're getting defensive about what the Lord is speaking to us. This is a powerful section of Scripture. Some of the truths that we're going to read tonight, they should rock us. They should challenge us. They should bring us to our need for God's grace in our lives. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. A reminder to Saul, God is the one who has chosen you. God is the one who has anointed you. Now listen to his voice. For us as well, God is the one who's chosen us. God is the one who saved us. God is the one who has blessed us. So let's heed his voice. So here's the command. Saul's going to have a specific instruction. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Remember when the children of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, traveling to the promised land? Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both male and woman, infant, nursing, child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. This takes us back to Exodus chapter 17. If you're taking notes, you want to write it down, read it later, because what the Amalekites did as the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, and we also know this from Deuteronomy, is they attacked from behind. It wasn't this frontal attack. It wasn't taking on those that were strong. The weak would be towards the back, the, those that couldn't quite keep up, and that's who the Amalekites came and attacked. And that's what Satan often does. He attacks those who are vulnerable. God then calls Joshua into his first battle as the leader. Moses goes up on the mountain to pray, and as Moses' hands were lifted up in prayer, they won the battle. But as they started to get weak, they started to lose. His hands started to fall. So then Aaron and Ur, they lifted up his hands, came and supported him underneath, and then God run the great victory. And in Exodus 17, right at this event, God said that he would destroy the Amalekites. Let me read it to you. The Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalekite from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalekite from generation to generation. So right away, God said, there's gonna be judgment upon the Amalekites for what they have done, but God in his patience and his long suffering waits and waits and waits all the way from Exodus to now this time in 1 Samuel for the judgment to come. And that's how God works in his judgment. God is very long suffering in his judgment, but ultimately his judgment will come. These are difficult verses for us oftentimes because we read that male and woman, infant and nursing child were, were killed. 
And we go, how can God do this? Sometimes we may look at God's judgment in that way, but the judge of the earth, he does right. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that? The judge of the earth, he, he does right. And as you look at the Amalekite people, they're not going to be destroyed this day because of Psalm, Saul's compromise. And you track through history, and Haman, might ring a bell from the book of Esther, he is an Amalekite. And what does he try to do? He tries to destroy the whole nation of Israel. So if you don't deal with things in your life, if you don't follow God's command, it tends to, to grow from that point. God in his wisdom knew that this was the time for judgment to come. And if you look throughout history, it's humbling because God does judge societies. He judges cultures, he judges nations, and he does it when he sees that it's fit. So why should that be humbling? Because as a country, as a group of people, as a society, we should look back at history and go, this is what happens when people turn away from the Lord. It's a clear command that's given to Saul. In verse 4, so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tell aim 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. We've been reading in the last few chapters that Israel didn't have much of an army. There's a point where Saul had 600 men with him and everybody else is hiding. Saul's had some victories. Now the army's well-established. There's 210,000 men. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from amongst the Amalekites. Justice doesn't punish the innocent with the wicked. Isn't that true? So God says the Kenites, they showed favor to the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. So go warn them that they need to depart from the Amalekites and they're not judged in this experience. In verse seven, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilon all the way to Sur, which is east of Egypt. So all the way down east of Egypt, he attacks the, the Amalekites. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Was that part of the command that God gave? God said, I want you to destroy all of them, but he chooses to keep Agag alive as his trophy and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Partial obedience. Partial obedience. They only obey God's word, God's command, partially. They decide that they know better than God, and they're going to keep the king, and they're also going to keep anything that looks good to them. So they go through, and they're keeping the best of the cattle. I got to tell you tonight, and this is the truth, is that partial obedience is complete disobedience. And we don't like to look at it that way. It's not comfortable to look at it that way. But a lot of our times in our lives, we go 80%. We go 90%. And God's saying, you need to go 100%. Because if you don't deal with sin in your life, it's going to get the best of you. Amalekites are also descendants of Esau. And in the scriptures, Esau is a picture of the flesh. He was a man that went after his sinful nature. 
And so he is a picture of a life that's lived in the flesh. And a lot of times when it comes to our sinful nature, we don't want to deal with it all the way. Why? Because we view part of our sin as being beneficial to us. We really don't want it completely out of our lives because we like it. It does something for us. And that's what's going on for Saul. He's saying, I don't want to completely obey the Lord here because I like having Agag as my trophy. This is another badge of honor for me. How could you kill this really nice cow right here? I mean, this is, this is a really nice thing. So I've got to take this for myself. But everything that was despised and worthless, then, then they got rid of it. So then we have to go a little bit deeper. How do I really see the sin in my life? Do I see the anger in my life as being completely bad? Or is there a certain part of it that I hold on to as being a part of my identity and I think, well, this is actually good? Or maybe in the area of sexual sin. Well, I've, I've dealt with sexual sin in, in a large way. I'm not cheating on my spouse. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. But yet, you know in your heart and your life, there's this 10% over here. There's this 20% over here that God wants to deal with, this thought life. And God's saying, no, I, I want you to walk in a way of sexual integrity. Well, well this part over here, this, this 10%, I actually kind of like. It's, it's kind of good. So I'm going to protect it. If this is the code of secrecy, I'm not going to share that with anybody else because it's serving me. Bitterness. We look at bitterness and we go, well, I've sure come a long way with bitterness. I wouldn't want to have to forgive them completely. That just doesn't seem quite right. I'll just hold on to a little bit of these hard feelings and, and see how easy it is and how this creeps into our hearts and our lives. So we see this place in Saul's life. Compromise, we loosely mix in a whole lot of obedience with a little bit of disobedience. And that's where we come up with the compromise. A lot of times, compromise in our lives isn't full-on disobedience. It's mixed with a lot of obedience, but yet there's still a little bit of disobedience. We go on into verse 10, and it's correction. We go from the compromise to the correction. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, before I go on, why is obedience a big deal? Why is it important? Because God has an awesome plan for us. And when I say that, I'm not meaning that everything's going to be easy. But what I am saying is that Jesus Christ came to give life and to give it more abundantly, overflowing. What does Satan do? He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus Christ comes to give life and to give it more abundantly. Because if we're not careful, when we look at this area of obedience, I think we can miss the heart of God. And the heart of God is this loving Father where he's saying, I've got the best for your life. And the best is going to be walking in my ways, completely, totally. I, I, want, I want to move in your life. I want to do a work in your life. I want you to have fellowship with me. We're going to see that this sin in Saul's life, it's keeping him from fellowship with God. So keep the heart of the Father in mind when we think about obedience. Now let's go to the correction. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I have greatly regret, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it has grieved Samuel, and he cried to the Lord all night. This is the word of the Lord that came to Samuel. God says, I have greatly regretted setting up Saul as king. 
And these words at first seem a little bit surprising from God because how would God not know the choices that Saul would make? He obviously knew the choices that Saul would make. In fact, that was part of this whole deal for the children of Israel. Hey, choose us a king. We want a king. We don't want God's authority in our lives anymore. So, all right, this is what you you ask for. But yet, even though Saul is living out the course that God knew full well, it still breaks God's heart because God's not emotionless and God's desiring relationship with Saul. So even though he's all-knowing, it doesn't remove the emotion factor from the Lord. What this really expresses from God is he's heartbroken. God's heartbroken. Say, I, I regret the fact that Saul, Saul is king. And when we go into that area of compromise, we have to understand it hurts the heart of God. It hurts his heart as our father. He's going, oh, my heart's broken right now. As we look at the life of Saul, it's very clear. It says he's turned back from following me. He did a U-turn. He started off well. He was following the Lord, but at some point in this journey, he turned away and he stopped following the Lord and he started following himself. I think it was like this. It's gradual. It was slow, but steady. A lot of times that's what it is when we turn back from following the Lord. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's immediate, but a lot of times it's the slow drifting. We don't ever see Saul turning back to the Lord. We see him dying in that hard heart condition. Samuel shows a heart that's still soft. He's seen a lot, he's been through a lot. Eli, Eli's sons, he's old, he's about done here, but his heart's still soft to where he grieves, he cries all night out to the Lord because of the compromise in Saul's life. And it's difficult when there's a spiritual leader that falls, turns back on their Lord, and the consequences it goes through. And I think, I think Saul felt that, Samuel, excuse me, felt that. And his heart is grieved as well. He's expressing the heart of God here. Great example of keeping your heart soft. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. And he's gone around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. So you'd think maybe that hopefully Saul would be feeling some conviction, being moved towards repentance, but instead, he's at Carmel, and he's building a monument to himself. Oh, I'm a big guy. I'm a tall guy. I just won these victories, and so I better build some kind of statue so everybody can remember great King Saul. What's happened to him? He's blinded by his pride and his selfishness. When he turned from following the Lord, what's he running after? He's running after himself. He's consumed with, what do people think about me? I want people to remember me. I want to live a a legacy. It's me, me, me. His favorite song is, it's all about me. You know, that, that was his expression. You know, that, that's what he wanted people to know. And church, this is where we're going to gravitate towards when we drift from the Lord. It's always going to turn towards ourselves. It's always going to turn towards building this monument for ourselves. Pride and selfishness are blinding. Pride and disobedience, it makes us blind and deaf to our own sin. 
Saul's in this place where he's not even seeing his own sin before the Lord. This is where Psalms 139 comes in. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, deliver us. Deliver us from that pit of selfishness. We may not even see it. We may not even understand it. People around us see it, but we don't see it. We're too busy focused upon ourselves. In verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul and said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the command of the Lord. Brother Saul, he's just kicking down the lingo. He's got the Christianese down. Here comes Samuel. Oh, brother Samuel, great to see you. I have been doing the command of the Lord. I completely obeyed the Lord. And he's hiding behind these lies. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Great question. What's that sound? Hmm, sure sounds like some cows that you didn't kill. What's that sheep? There's a real distinct sound with sheep. They're just bleeding, bleating in my ears. Good question for Saul. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Bold-faced lie. Says nothing about Agag. How it's the people's fault. This is Saul's favorite line. When he compromised earlier, whose fault was it? Well, it it was Samuel's fault because he wasn't on time. If Samuel would have been on time, then Saul wouldn't have offered the burnt offering unto the Lord. And this time, it's the people's fault. We know that not everybody was utterly destroyed because the Amalekites continue on from this point. We see more Amalekites throughout the Old Testament. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. (laughs) Oh, man. Whew. I bet Saul was quiet. And when I tell you what the Lord said to me last night, and he said to him, speak on. And Samuel's like, well, I'm going to speak on either way. It's coming. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? He reminds him of humility. He reminds him, there was a point in your life, Saul, where you didn't think that you were some big hotshot. You never thought about going around, putting up monuments of yourself. You didn't want attention. When Saul was anointed king, he was hiding underneath some equipment. He started in this real place of of humility. But now he's moved to this place of pride. Remember when he was anointed to be king? What was he doing? He was looking for the donkeys that his father had lost. He was that guy. Well, who's going to go look for the donkeys today? Well, Saul. Saul's going to, that's where he was on the totem pole. Who, who needs to do this task that nobody else wants to do? Well, Saul. He's the young guy. He's the guy without experience, and God anointed him to be king. And as we consider our thoughts towards ourselves, was there a time when we walked in humility? Was there a time where we didn't think much of ourselves, not in a put-down type of way. I hope you understand that you're created by God, you're made in the image of God, you're valuable by the Lord, not in that type of way, but there wasn't this entitlement mentality. 
There wasn't this expectation for people to pay attention to you and to, to listen to you and all of those types of things. In Romans 12, it says this, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. How are we to think of ourselves? That we've received grace. That God loves us. He deals to each one a measure of faith. God was the one who brought me to to himself. Verse 18. Then the Lord sent you on mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul saw his compromise that it would bring his benefit. He saw some spoil that he really wanted. And so he swoops down in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil's always done in the sight of the Lord. In verse 20, And Saul said to Samuel, But I've obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalekite, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. This is almost like talking to a toddler who's gotten into a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Saying, did you get into the peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No, Dad. I did not get into the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I don't even know what peanut butter and jelly is. And there's peanut butter and jelly all over their face, right? It's like, if you only knew what was on your, on your face right now. And, and Saul's the same way. He's saying, I have obeyed the voice of God. Oh, yeah, but, but I did bring back Agag. Well, wasn't that a compromise? But the people, once again, but the people took the plunder, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things which, they, which have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord, has the Lord as great, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And Samuel hits the nail on the head, doesn't he? He says, God's not concerned with you just bringing him gifts, bringing these animal sacrifices to the Lord. He doesn't delight in that, just the gifts in and of themselves, but he delights in obedience. And I want you to focus on this phrase, let it sink in tonight, and it says, to obey, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. We know this to be true if you think of it inside of the context of marriage. You could have a spouse that's great at giving gifts, great at even spending time, great at acts of service, and they've got all of this down. They know your love language, they serve you perfectly, great communicator, Ladies, they're listening and always want to talk and just the list goes on and on. But then you find out that your spouse has been unfaithful for years. They've got somebody on the side and they've been, and then you go, you know, those flowers, they're meaningless. All those conversations didn't matter. You've been cheating on me. And God feels the same way with Saul's rebellion and Saul's compromise. The only thing that God really longs for that we can really give to the Lord is a broken and contrite heart. And we know that from Psalms 51. It says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
a broken and contrite heart, these, O God, you do not despise. God would have not despised that in Saul's life. If Saul would have come to this place of repentance and brokenness before the Lord, not trying to give God these gifts that are meaningless, God would have responded to that in Saul's life with grace, forgiveness, restoration. We see that in King David's life as well. That's what God's longing for. And sometimes we can get really good at the external things. You might get good at writing a tithe check. You might get good at coming to a Saturday night service. Might get good at serving. And I faithfully do all these things. And there is meaning in those things when it's built in a life of obedience. But if our life is in complete rebellion to God, but we feel a little bit better about our rebellion because we write a tithe check, we feel a little bit better about our rebellion because we read through the Bible in a year. Man, it's great to read the word. We just talked about how important it is to read the word. But if I'm just using that as a scapegoat to not have to deal with, with sin in my life, it gets to a point where God says this. This is Isaiah 1. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. These are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. This is God saying, I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of your worship services. I'm sick of your sacrifices at, at the Passover. Because Israel had gotten to a place at this point in Isaiah where they were walking in complete rebellion, but then coming into God's house and being like, Praise the Lord. And God's like, no. But thankfully, Isaiah 1 goes on. It says, wash yourself, make yourself clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Snow could be coming. Do you guys realize that? It doesn't feel like it today when it's 84 degrees, but sometimes we get snow in September and it's beautiful. And I want you to hear this because I think it hits for some tonight as you're saying, man, I just picked the wrong night to come to church. I knew God hated me before I came in here. And I'm the biggest pretender of them all. I've got this double life. I'm in full-on rebellion to God. God's tired of it. So I'm not, I'm not even going to try. This is it. This is the last time you'll, you'll see me at church. That's not it at all. What God's wanting is for us to be honest. He's saying, I'm ready to wash you and make you white as snow. You don't have to bring me any money. You don't have to sign up for the two-year-olds in children's ministry. You don't have to put a face on. You don't have to pretend like you don't have any problems or sin. You just have to have a broken and contrite heart. And I'll come in and I'll cleanse you. And God says this, to confess our sin to him 
and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? And that's what Saul was unwilling to do. As he was corrected, he put up all of these walls, all of these blame shifting, and he didn't get to this place of having a broken and contrite heart before God. Unfortunately, there will be compromise in our lives sometimes. And God will correct us. And when he corrects us, how do we respond to that correction? A broken and contrite heart before the Lord. And then he'll be faithful to bring the cleansing. In verse 23, For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is an iniquity and idolatry, because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. We think of witchcraft as the exact opposite of God. It's in rebellion to God. And so rebellion is as of witchcraft. Saul's in rebellion. Saul is beyond that point of struggling. This isn't wrestling with sin. This isn't, oh, I I really don't want to do this, and oh, I messed up. This is full-on willful rebellion to the Lord, and God says to him, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. In the middle of verse 23 really hit me. It says, stubbornness is a sin, it's iniquity, and idolatry. In the ESV version, uh, stubbornness is translated as being presumptuous. And I was like, why is one translation stubbornness and another translation to be in this place where we're pursuing? And then it hit me, is what Saul is pursuing about God's character is it's no big deal if I sin. And that's stubbornness. Do you see how the two go together? So he's like, ah, it doesn't really matter. He's lost the fear of God. He's lost the, the reverence of the Lord and he's just presumptuous. Well, it's no big deal if I do this. I've already done this compromise and I've already done that compromise and it's that place of stubbornness. Because of his rebellion, because of his stubbornness, his lack of broken and contrite heart, God rejects him as king. Notice he's not rejected as God's child. It's not saying God won't forgive him if Saul were to repent, but he has lost his position of authority. Church, we can get to that place because of our sin that we're handing over the authority that God has given. And thankfully, when there's repentance and brokenness and fruits of repentance, God can can restore. But understand that God rejects Saul because he had rejected the word of the Lord. You guys doing okay? You tracking with me? Anybody had a long day and you're just like, man, I'm struggling to stay awake? They got some good espresso upstairs, but the cafe's closed right now. It'll be open after service. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the command of the Lord at your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So from verse 24 to the end of the chapter, we have the counter. We've had the compromise. We've had the correction. Now we've got the the counter, the blame shifting. What is he saying here? Well, he acknowledges his sin, but not from his heart because he quickly sets up because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's not getting to that place of owning his sin. In verse 25, now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Seems like Saul just wants to kind of put this over. Just, you know, the quick cover up here. All right, I said I'm sorry. Now would you come back with me and let's just all worship and pretend like this is all good. 
And a lot of times that's what we do with our sin. We kind of do the quick, like, oh, I'm sorry. And then we're like, yeah, let's move on. And I, I don't want to have to deal with this. And then someone that we've really hurt because of our sin, it's not that they're not forgiving us. They're just coming to us and saying, you know what? What you did really hurt. And you're like, you know what? You should just move on and get over it. It's like, well, you've been cheating on me for 20 years. Well, just move on and get over it. (laughs) You know, the Lord forgives me. Yeah, and I forgive you too, but it really hurts. And that's kind of the attitude of Saul. This is very different from a broken and contrite heart that's grieved before God and comes and says, you know, I don't know that I'll fully understand how much that I hurt you, but I'd ask that you please forgive me, and I'm willing to sit in this for a while, and would you please articulate to me all that I've put you through all these years? Do you see how that's different? And we don't see that in Saul. Saul's just like, yep, let's, let's go on. In verse 26, but Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. I picture Samuel here saying, hey, stop, this is a big deal. Don't you get this? I just told you you're not going to be the king of Israel. You're rejected as the the king of Israel. Did you hear that? Did, Did that sink into your heart anywhere? And Samuel says, I'm not going with you. And Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe, and he tore it. So Samuel's like, nope, I'm not going with you to this worship service. And the robe of Samuel's is torn from, by Saul. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has tore the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Wow. Samuel just speaks the truth. You're not going to be king. In fact, God's going to raise up a new king who's a lot better than you. <laughs> you know? Verse 29. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for it is not a man and that, that he should relent. Speaking of God's character. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned. And catch this. See how flippantly he's saying, I've sinned. I've sinned, yet honor me. Honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He wants Samuel to come back to be at this worship service with the elders so he doesn't lose face. He wants all of the elders to not know of his compromise. And the end is very telling in verse 30. It says that I may worship the Lord your God. He doesn't say the Lord my God. Church, I think we have a lot to learn from this tonight because when it comes to rebellion and compromise and sin in our lives, a lot of times we just want to save face. And you know the place that we want to save face the most is right here, unfortunately, isn't it? Saul wanted to save face at the worship service, save face with with the elders. And so instead of having that broken and contrite heart, we do some blame shifting. We say, well, it was the people. Well, it was the mother that you gave me. Well, it was my dad's fault. Well, it was Academy Boulevard's fault. Who in, who in the world designed Academy Boulevard? If they wouldn't have been idiots, I wouldn't be losing my temper, right? It's their fault. You know, we do all this blame shifting that, that takes place. And then... God continues to bring correction, and all we're worried about is our reputation. We don't want people to see 
our compromise, our sin. And I think that God's house is the place that the Lord would want us to be honest, don't you? I find the people that I really respect are people that know the Lord well enough and have the courage in God's character to be real people and admit when they fall short. I don't expect anybody to be perfect. I know that no one can be perfect other than the Lord. And when someone is honest and they're broken before the Lord and they say, hey, this man, I've had a bad day. Do you know how hard it is for Christians to admit they've had a bad day? How are you doing? Great, praise the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. Yeah, I know, but you look like you just got ran over by a truck. You know? <laughs> it's all right to be like, man, I, I, I had a really hard day. Man, I really blew it today. There was, a, there was some partial obedience in, in my life today. And we don't see that with Saul. All he wants to do is save face. In verse 31, so Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. The worship seems empty, doesn't it? Samuel's extremely gracious to go back with Saul. He turns back, and he's willing to go back with Saul, and Saul worships, but it's not from that place of authenticity. In verse 32, then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Agag's like, okay, I think I'm all right. I think they're done killing people today. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so we see the kind of people that the Amalekites were, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Some of these prophets meant business, you know what I'm saying? like Elijah on Mount Carmel just going for it on these false prophets. I think this is the reason that Samuel went back, don't you? It wasn't to save Saul's reputation. It's like Agag still needs to be dealt with. Saul's not going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm committed to seeing the word of God dealt with and obeyed 100%. Verse 34, then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. So they part ways. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. So this is the last time that we see Saul and Samuel together. The last time that Samuel's going to be with Saul is at his death, at his funeral, and at his memorial. Let's press in for just a moment. Allow the Lord to bring application in in our hearts, in our lives. I think a broken and contrite heart before God is a beautiful and wonderful thing, no matter where we're at in our walk with God. And if you're in that place where you're like Saul, you're saying, you know what, there's partial obedience in my life. God, search me and know me. Let's take a few moments to, to pray that to the Lord. God, search my heart and know me. Is there things that I'm not seeing in my heart and in my life? Maybe you're seeing it fully. And there's an agag that God's been saying, deal with. Let me bring this victory in your life. But for some reason, you want to keep agag over here. You want to keep the, the spoil over here. But also, if you're at a place in your relationship with the Lord, 
and you're not seeing any rebellion before God, praise the Lord. But a broken and contrite heart before the Lord is still a beautiful thing. To be in that place where our heart is soft before God, our heart's broken before God, where we're in love with the Lord and we're saying, saying, God, just search me and know me. I want to be close to you. I want to be personal with you. I want to walk with you and allow God to do that work in our hearts and in our lives. I'm going to ask you to do one thing that's a step further than probably where you want to go tonight. And it's this. James 5, verse 16 says this. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why would we need to confess to one another? Didn't I just say, John, 1 John 1, 9, that as we confess to the Lord that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is the one who provides forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. So why in the world would we ever have to share our rebellion, our disobedience, our sin with anyone else? There's a promise in James 5.16 that if we confess to one another and we pray for one another, not try to fix one another, pray for one another, that God will bring healing, that God will bring deliverance. Many times, sin is broken in our lives as we confess to the Lord for forgiveness, confess to another believer so that we're not going through this sin alone anymore. We're not living in isolation anymore. They can be faithful to pray for us and God brings healing. Then if we go back into that sin, right away, we call that believer and say, would you pray for me? I have messed up in this area again. Or when we're being tempted to go back into that area, you call that believer and say, would you pray for me? I'm being tempted in this way. If you are in a place of compromise tonight and you're not willing to share with another believer, I don't think you really want to change. I don't think I really want to change. We want to keep Agag. Agag still has some benefit to us. Those cows and those sheep, they still have some benefit to us. We're not really done with it. It's a quick, I'm sorry to the Lord, but I haven't really got to the place where I despise this sin and it's no good to me any longer. Do we believe that God can do a work in and through our lives that comes through brokenness and humility? So I'm going to give you a few practical ways to do that. Is In just a moment, we're going to have the worship team come. And right now, to respond right now, we're going to have men and women down here in the front to simply pray with you. You don't have to go into a lot of detail, but say, hey, this is the reality of where I am tonight. The word says, I confess and pray God brings healing and allow God to do a work in your heart and your life tonight. But you know what? It's not just the people that are going to be down front here that are able to pray with you. James 5 says every believer can pray with you. Every believer can. And you may be sitting next to a great person to open up to and ask them to pray for you. And I want this sanctuary to become a place of ministry. Instead of us getting up and heading out, maybe you feel comfortable turning to the person sitting next to you and saying, I gotta be honest. This is the reality of the struggle that I'm going through. Would you pray for me? And if you've wrestled through both of those two, 
And you've said, you know, I'm not going to come forward and receive prayer. I'm not going to turn to someone next to me and receive prayer. Then guess what? Go get in your car and call somebody and receive prayer. And you get the super chicken award. That's okay. I get the super chicken award. That's okay. I don't think God's going, oh, no, they didn't walk down to the front of the sanctuary. They didn't turn to someone in the sanctuary. But this is a problem is that it's really easy to get out of the car and talk ourselves out of it. Well, God knows. God forgives. And to get to that place of saying, no, I need to open up. I can't live in secrecy any longer. I am going to have a broken and contrite heart and really see God do work of healing and deliverance in my life. But I know for me, there's a real value in not waiting. So let's pray. Let's wait upon the Lord. As I pray, I'm going to ask the ministry team, men and women, to come forward to be available right here in the front. So when we're done praying, you're going to see ministry team right here. And if God's tugging on your heart, nothing's too big, nothing's too small. Last time I checked, God didn't rate sin, you know, respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. So Father, we come before you right now. We open up our hearts and our lives to you. God, we see Saul in ourselves. We don't want that to continue. We want you to do a work in our hearts and our lives. And as we step out in faith in your word to, to no longer walk in partial obedience, to no longer hide our sin, but to confess to one another, and as we pray for one another that you would bring healing. So God, would your spirit move? Would you work? We believe in your power. God, would the Holy Spirit just begin to hound us, to bring us to that place? Would you search us? Would you know us? Would you help us as a church body to be of broken and contrite spirit? So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.